Welcome to the Flaps Podcast. Hello and welcome to the second Flaps Podcast. I'm Elliot. And I'm Mark. Yes, thank you for all the kind comments and emails. We've got a few here. Let's uh, let's read a few out. Ryan525 says, good job, boys. Keep this going. Now buckle up. Thank you, Ryan5252. Entertaining, interesting, enlightening and highly listenable. Entertaining, highly listenable? Not my words. The words of Flyby Mike. Oh, thank you, Flyby Mike. And uh, another one here. Love the podcast, lads. One of the best things I've heard. And I signed Genesis. Huh? R. Branson. That's R. One. Branson? Yeah. R. Branson. Richard Branson? Might be. You've made that up. Uh, yeah, I might have made that up. Oh, I can't I believe a word you're saying. Well, you know, the other two were real, though. The other two were proper ones. Thank you very much. Now, look, what's in this edition? In a minute, we'll be talking to the former BA captain and pilot of the 777 that crashed at Heathrow in 2008. Peter Burkle joins us. We catch up with our pet PPL, Carl. And I'm Pablo Mason. Never doubt a man who said his son is an RAF pilot. Find out why later. Welcome to another Flaps podcast. We're joined now by former BA captain Peter Burkill. Now, you probably remember this huge story. Uh, Peter was in command of the Boeing 777 that crashed just inside the perimeter of Heathrow Airport two years ago. Uh, he's written a new book about all of this. It tells about the experience. It's called 30 Seconds to Impact. And Peter, hero, I guess, is a, a pretty fair way of describing you because they were fairly heroic actions. Don't go there. He's shaking his head. You're <laughs> modest, sir. You're very modest. Uh, Peter, it's, uh, it's good to have you in. Hello, Elliot. Um, just v- before we talk about what happened, obviously, uh, the events of the 17th of January 2008, just tell us a bit of background. I mean, how did you actually become a commercial pilot? I suppose it was one of the few things I could think of that I wanted to do when I was a 17-year-old lad. My, my father was a pilot in BOAC and British Airways, so I'd, I'd grown up with the, the whole idea of commercial pilots, and actually it's quite achievable by a, a normal everyday chap so I thought yeah I'd, I'd quite like to do that and you uh, you started off with a PPL and, and went that yeah, way I, yeah I was a late starter flying to be honest you know I didn't have the cash to get my license so I really wanted to get my PPL to show interest to British Airways when I was applying so I think it started like that and I did got my PPL in in one summer and thoroughly enjoyed it because you obviously worked for BA for a long time and you became a, a 777 pilot and flew them for quite a long time. How, how long were you on the 777s for? 12 years, or well, 13 years by the time I left, so it's 12 years um, up to the accident. So you, you know the aircraft pretty well, it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, I, I was very happy. I was very at home. It was uh, a very comfortable office. Uh, yeah, with a good view, <laughs> oh, very as nice. always, yes. which, which I suppose was great when it came to you know the day in question, 17th of January 2008, on final approach, twelve forty-one in, in the oh yeah, <laughs> not that it's ingrained in your in your brain. On final approach at Heathrow, and and obviously you picked the story up. Tell us what happened. Yeah, everything was uh, was going swimmingly. Yeah, we were coming in nicely ahead of schedule, and nice, comfortably on time. We had plenty of fuel on board, and absolutely nothing nothing to be concerned about until five hundred feet when John, who was flying, he's my first officer. John Coward, he suddenly says to me, Pete, what's going on? I can't get any power. Help. The first um, problem was the right-hand engine failed to give power, demanded power. Mm. Uh, We didn't know at the time that that was happening. We didn't get any warnings in the flight deck. But John started to get a little bit of asymmetric thrust, so the right-hand engine had had failed, and so the autothrottle was was powering up on the right-hand side. Mm. So he felt that slight uh, change in the throttle movements 
started to get concerned about that, and then seven seconds later, the left-hand engine had suffered the same fate. So now we've got both engines not performing, not giving us the power we're demanding. What were you thinking at that point? Well, when John verbalised his power problems, and he was physically flying the plane so he could feel the auto throttles going further and further forward, when he actually verbalised, where's the power help? I obviously instantly looked at the instruments and it was just sheer disbelief. They didn't make sense. We were clearly asking for full power. The, the white demand line was up there at max, but the engine instruments were not showing us being given any power. They were just blank, and it, it was disbelief because it, it didn't make sense. I'd never seen it before, and there were no warnings, so it was very quiet. There were no alarm bells going off and no lights, so it, it just looked rather strange. And how long had you got at this point? How, how long do you think it was until you'd have hit the ground? That was about 35 seconds from that point. And how high were you again? We were about 500 feet. Oh, OK, that's, yeah. not, that's not much room for manoeuvre, is it? So what did you do? Obviously, you've got to act quickly. What, what did you do? I never felt the need to act really quickly. I knew that time was, was of the essence, but I never felt I had to react really quickly. Did everything go in slow motion? Because people did. say that, don't they? When, yeah. when something like this happens, you kind of, everything slows yeah. down. You got that, yeah? When I listened to the cockpit voice recorder about a week after the incident, I was very surprised at how short it was. I couldn't believe it because it felt like about three or four minutes mm. of actual action. And during that time, which was only 30 seconds of, of time to deal with this problem, I did an, an amazing amount of stuff. And I couldn't believe what, how much I'd actually managed to do in that time. And what actually did you do to, to, you know, to sort the problem out? Obviously, you have, to, you have to fly the aircraft first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, so aviate, navigate, communicate. Is, is paramount. The old mantra. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it's true. It is. Um, and that comes naturally. I, My first big decision was to leave John, my first officer, flying the plane. So he was going to aviate the actual aircraft. That meant I could release my command potential to, to try and sort out the problem. Um, I remember thinking it can't be anything too bad. It must be a sort of fuel problem, fuel supply problem. So it's probably just a few switches have come unstuck out of position. So I remember thinking, yeah, well, I'll, I'll go up to the overhead panel and uh, check the fuel pumps and put the crossfeeds on, which is what I did. But the, the fuel pumps were were showing normal operation. There were no you know, low-pressure lights on or anything. So it didn't make sense. Uh, carried on down the overhead panel, just trying to find anything that might help. Um, of course, there wasn't anything. The hydraulics weren't going to help. The electrics were all working normal. I remember looking at the light panel, thinking, well, they're not going to do any good, so carry on down. <laughs> Quick, another look at the fuel gauge. That was still showing 10.5 tonnes, so plenty of fuel. So we hadn't run out of fuel. Uh, then back down to the throttles. Um, John had already got those as far forward as he could anyway, but I gave him a, another shove. Also um, made sure the speed brake was not deployed, just in case that was causing excess drag. Uh, it wasn't, that was fine. And then uh, checked the fuel control switches, make sure they were still in the run position. And that's when we got our first warning, which was an airspeed low warning. Um, and that was a bit of a shock, because I had almost convinced myself that the, the warning system must have failed mm. in some way, because we had a very quiet flight deck at this point, and yet we clearly had a, a major problem. I basically a double engine failure. So to you know, to be faced with this airspeed low warning is a, is a nasty 
uh, miles to caution to get at that stage. Um, so I shouted that out to John. I do not go any slower is the is the checklist for that one um, because we're obviously we're coming back to the stall mm. stall speed now. Yeah, and we were at flap thirty at that point. And as I looked out the window to uh, see where we were about to impact, uh, we're now about twenty five seconds to impact. Um, looking out the window, naturally our rate of descent had had to increase to maintain the speed yeah. that we had to protect that speed that we had. I think we were back to one hundred and fifteen knots at that point. Uh, our rate of descent had increased about fourteen hundred feet per minute. So, correction, eighteen hundred feet per minute, mm. and uh, normally about seven seven fifty feet per minute for that approach. And our impact point was Hatton Cross, which is full of buildings and. It's not really where we're going to be landing a, no. a, a heavy aircraft, is it? Of any any aircraft, really. So you know, you you can see all this in front of you. When the, you're faced with this as a pilot, obviously you've got the automatic stuff that you do. You do all your checks and you do what you can to keep the aircraft flying. Mm. And obviously you think about your passengers. But what about what do you think? Because, I mean, you, you know, personally you're sitting here thinking, I mean, there must be a moment when you think, hang on, if we hit this, I'm dead. Or does that not enter yeah, your mind? It didn't. Really? I, I find that I, really hard to believe. Yeah, I, I do, looking back. Before this incident, I used to say to, to my friends or people who were slightly fearful of flying i'd say well don't worry because the pilots are concerned about themselves so in a situation where you've got an engine failure or you know some problem they're going to be looking after themselves they're going to be thinking of their own safety we do it in the simulator every six months we're used to it so we look after ourselves and we get that simulator back on the ground the cockpit on the ground and Mm. the rest of the plane follows so actually yes we're going to be a bit selfish and think about ourselves but when it actually happened i was not thinking about myself I I never thought about my own safety whilst we were flying in the air. I was actually thinking of the passengers first. And I, looking back, I find that quite amazing that I, I didn't think of my own safety first. But then I, I was the captain and my responsibility is to look after the passengers. So, um, you, but you, I mean, you, you did manage to avoid it and you, you pulled, the, pulled the stage of the flap up, didn't you, to extend the glide? Yeah, the, the flap selection, deselection, whatever you want to call it, was not a checklist it's not not a, a procedure in the book so I, I found myself in this gray area that hadn't been written about it was something we we hadn't tried in the simulator i'd never seen it before and i knew that i had to work outside of this gray area and i had to find something that i hadn't been told about something to do and it was obvious to me at that point when i was looking at how cross impact point that all my passengers were were about to die if I didn't do something. Mm. And I, with the experience I had on the 777, I just knew that this aircraft had too much drag. We were right at the back of the drag curve and we didn't have any power to, to get us out of it. So, yeah, the, the flap selection was almost obvious to me at the time. A lot of other pilots have said, oh, I wouldn't have thought about that, Pete. I, how did you think about that during that time? But to me, in the situation I was faced with, it, it was almost an obvious choice, really. And that was just enough to get you over the perimeter fence, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I knew that by deselecting from flap 30 position that we had to flap 25 would obviously increase our, our stall speed slightly. And obviously we were back at the flap 30 stall speed. Um, we were in and out of the stick shaker. John was flying it perfectly. But I, I knew that if I didn't deselect flap 25, that the drag would just bring us in well short of safety. 
So by reducing that drag, yeah, it just it just increased our flight distance by or well, 51 meters is what uh, the Boeing test pilots came up with in the simulator. How did it feel when you actually touched down? Because it was still a fair old impact, wasn't it? It was a bump. It wasn't yeah. anything. There was nothing smooth about it. No, it was. I was I was expecting a bone jarring jolt up the spine, and it wasn't as bad as that. It was bad. It was it was still a, a heavy impact, but I actually remember thinking the the back of the hull had been breached, the tail section of the plane had snapped off. It was that bad. So um, were you surprised when you know when everyone got off and there was when there was there was one injury, wasn't there? I think. Yeah, I I was very surprised to get down the bottom of the slide and and to hear that everybody was off. Extremely pleased um, and surprised because yes, this aircraft in my mind, had been in pieces. You know, there's, there's fuel spilling out. There was fuel spilling out. Uh, there was be all manners of wires loose and electric currents flowing all over the place, and there was hydraulics and oxygen leaking everywhere. So this aircraft should have gone up in a, a ball of flame. So you got down, and you've basically averted a major disaster. Um, and y- you were hailed as a hero. I mean, that was, the, that was the, the initial, that you were all over the news and you were given a press conference and everyone was amazed. Um, you know, how did that feel? You must, that must have been a, a great feeling. Looking back, yes, I had averted a disaster. But don't forget that I, when I look back on that tarmac, I look back at this beautiful 777 that had taken off at Beijing I'd signed for 12 hours before. <laughs> and now it was in pieces, almost certainly a write-off. So, yes, financially, it was um, you know, a quick way to spend £150 million. <laughs> but I didn't feel, guilt, I didn't feel guilty because I, I knew it wasn't our fault. So, yes, diverted a disaster. Nobody had died, and that, and that, was, that was great. Do you know that though? As I mean, as as the, as the captain, you I mean, obviously the press want to know that everyone's safe, and that's the big story, isn't it? But you did you at the back of your head were you thinking, oh no, whatever happens, I'm going to get into some kind of trouble for this? Like you said, you'd sign for it, and it was your your responsibility. Yeah, I I knew I knew straight away on the ground after we'd done the evacuation. Literally before we got out of our seats, I I told the guys, right, you know, let's let's get out ourselves now. But as I was unbuckling myself and turning around in the seat, I did have another look at the fuel gauge. <laughs> I just needed to make sure we hadn't run out of fuel, had we? <laughs> and I looked down, and the, and the left wing tank had blanked. The uh, indications from that had, had been lost in the crash. Centre tank was showing zero, as we'd expect after a long flight, and the right wing tank was still showing 5.0 on the gauge. So I knew we hadn't run out of fuel, and mm. I remember saying to John and Connor as they were getting up, I said, this is not our fault. Now let's get out of here. I, I clearly remember feeling no guilt at all at that point because I knew in my head we had done everything by the book. So what happened with BA then? What I mean cuz the, the report said it it was the it was the ice and the fuel wasn't it? Was that that was the actual what? Yeah, I mean that that obviously came out uh, a lot later on, but uh, at work I had to have about um, a month off uh, to clear up, you know, obviously investigations and interviews and be cleared from the trauma psychologist. Really. Is that what they do? They, yeah. they give you some counselling and yeah, just make sure you're you're okay and fit to to go back to work again. So once you get signed off by the doctors and psychologists, the CAA are happy, then you can go back to work. And that took about a month for John and I. We were desperate, both of us. I remember we were desperate to to get back in the flight deck. My first flight back was Gatwick to Houston, Texas. And in that first flight, halfway across the pond, I heard two of my cabin crew tell me that I had not performed on that flight in from Beijing, that uh, I'd frozen on the flight deck, I hadn't issued a mayday call and I hadn't 
initiated the evacuation. And they'd heard that from where? They had been told that the week before. Was this the rumour that was going around? Yeah, they, they'd just been told that a week before at their annual safety training uh, by their trainers. And it shocked me to hear that. I was like, well, hang on a minute. They're telling you that. They should not be talking about things they don't know about. So I'd asked uh, British Airways if they could quash those words straight away. But they said the, they wouldn't be able to do that. Don't worry, nobody will believe that. So you didn't get the backing of BA then? No, they didn't. No, I didn't. And um, that article obviously got spread and got believed by people who read it. And I heard that rumour back on that first flight back. Well, how did that make you feel? You must have felt terrible. Uh, yeah, because I was, I was on a high to be back at work. Yeah. I was extremely confident in, in my actions. And, and then suddenly to hear this was like, well, hang on a minute. How many other people are thinking that? So what did you do about that? I mean, because you, you ended up taking voluntary redundancy, didn't you? Which, to me, personally, I would think that that seems a, not an admission, but, it, you know, if you, if you want to kind of clear your name, you surely would stay there and, and, and you well, know, front I, it out, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I obviously, after that flight, I asked for, for help on that on the matter of, of the rumours, and I was uh, advised to basically sit at home on, on, on gardening leave, mm. in effect, whilst they sorted out uh, the internal communications. And that took, instead of a couple of weeks, which they said it would take, it took three months. So I was at home for three months. And that just helped to fuel the rumours that, well, what has he done? Because now he's, he's not at work. He must have done something mm. wrong. That looks a bit guilty. So it actually made it a bit worse. By the time I got back to work, three months after my first flight back, the rumours had yeah, got a little bit deeper, really. They, they hadn't really been quashed. And after I went back to work for another 15 months uh, with uh, British Airways. So I, I was flying for over another year, but having to answer to these rumours every time I went to work. Um, and that, that was quite hurtful. And still the report was ongoing. I still couldn't defend myself properly um, certainly to the outside world I couldn't and uh, it just got worse and worse but the, I mean the report now and the reports come out and it, it has shown that it wasn't pilot error hasn't it so mm -hmm. d has that cleared your name now are you, are you happy with that oh I've, I've always known it, it wasn't pilot error I knew, mm. it, I knew it wasn't uh, anybody in that flight deck's fault uh, I knew that we averted disaster as you said earlier but I was waiting for that report to come out I needed it to be publicised. But of course, it's, it was over two years since the incident when the final report came out. It only came out February of this year. So it had been a long time coming and most people have forgotten about it. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I was probably one of the few people waiting for it. <laughs> so it, most people thought, well, that, that's done and dusted, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So it was, it was old news and so it wasn't, wasn't going to be talked about. People didn't worry about me. But at this stage, of course, I, I had left British Airways through my own choice, through a family choice, because there were plenty of other airlines around the world who were recruiting, still are recruiting, for 777 pilots. So I thought, maybe wrongly, but I thought, well, I've not done anything wrong. I've got good experience on the 777. I've got a rating on the 777. Surely I will get a job with one of those airlines around the world. And how wrong was I? So what are you doing now? I mean, you've got the book out, which we'll come on to in a minute, but, I mean, are you doing much... Are you doing any flying? Very little, um... I did have a little flight in a, an RV down at Gloucester last week. Thoroughly enjoyed it, just to get my hand back into flying because yeah. I haven't been flying for, for nearly a year. So none of this has put you off then? You, you, oh, no. You've still got the bug and you still want to fly? I have to. I, I think most pilots, certainly if, if you've been flying for commercially for 20 years and you've still got 
potentially another 20 years in you, then you, you don't want to give it up. But that's the way, that's the way our lives are going. It, we seem to be being funneled towards something. You know, me and my wife are wondering where that funnel is ending because almost every week there's another brick wall put up when we're heading towards it. Destiny. Yeah. Eventually you'll yeah, get there eventually. We're supposed to be going somewhere to do something. Well, do you know what? You've clearly been saved for something, Pete. <laughs> just tell me what it is. <laughs> you'll find out eventually. Just tell us quickly about the book because you've got obviously it's a hell of a story. It is a hell of a story and you know you've you've quite rightly written it all down and, and yeah, you've got the, the book out. Yeah, the the book started really Maria my wife started that. She she started jotting down what was happening to her during the first month after the crash and it, it was basically about how I was as a person. And I, when I read it, when I was allowed to read it by a, after about a month, I was shocked. I was really shocked at, at how I'd been behaving and the sort of person I, I was. I was very stressed, basically. And we decided we needed to jot down what was happening in our lives and eventually became quite a thick manuscript that one of our friends read. And she said, wow, that is a story and a half. Because it's not only about the incident. Basically, the first major section of it is about the accident but it's been written in a way that I'm telling my side of the story and then Maria tells her side how it's affecting her at the same time and we think it's worked very well it was it was difficult to write like that but it tells a story how it happened to both of us and the family and how it affected us so it, it needed to be written I think for both of us for our own emotions and almost as soon as we'd finished writing it it was hugely cathartic you always hear that telling mm. a story or writing it down helps will it it did for us. It, it was amazing to, to actually finish the book. It was almost like, well, that's it. The story's told. And it's, and it's called 30 Seconds to Impact. It is. And it's uh, available from all good bookstores and all online good. and everywhere else. Yeah, and, and you could buy it direct from my website, uh, peterburkill.com. Uh, if you want the book devalued, I can sign it <laughs> from that one if you, uh, if you ask for it to be so. Uh, and just very quickly, obviously, because I think it's every certainly mine, every pilot's absolute nightmare is an engine failure. And in a light aircraft, it, it tends to happen at about 2,000 feet. And I would be terrified. You did it at 600 feet with 30 seconds to go, so you must have some tips. Give us a few sensible tips for any flyers who might be listening, you know, yeah. to how to get down safely, Peter. The obvious one is don't panic. Everyone says that. Don't panic. You've got to, you've got to keep a clear head. You've got to be able to think straight. And if you can think straight, you will get so much done. And always try and make use of every second. I, I was still finding myself with 10 seconds to go, thinking what else I can do. And that's when I did the Mayday call. It's, there was never an emergency in the air. That's what I was told in training, and I believe that. You, you don't have to rush things. And if you don't rush things, you will get so much done. Top tip from a man who knows everything. Well, not everything, but certainly, <laughs> cer certainly about engine failures at very low level. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Elliot. Thank you. The Flaps Podcast, going around every month. In the last Flaps, we adopted our pet PPL, Carl, who we're going to follow around from zero to hero. Zero hours to hero hours no just that leave, work, leave it, it zero sorry, yeah, to sorry. hero we were a bit worried we wouldn't speak to him again because last time we spoke to him he called a landing an impact yeah uh, but you'll be pleased to know he's impact free and he's on the phone now hello carl hi guys uh the last time we spoke to you you'd had your trial lesson how have you come on in the intervening period 
Well, I've been trying to squeeze a lesson in absolutely whenever I can, which is, uh, you know, which is a bit of an effort when uh, my wife doesn't really approve that much. <laughs> but what have you been saying you've been doing? What's your excuse uh, been? Well, no, I've been, I've, I've been telling the truth. So I've just been, uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to keep a low profile in doing it. So you've had six or seven lessons? Yeah, that's right. And uh, that's, that, that is pretty good. That's quite keen since we spoke to you last. What have you done? So presumably you've done, what, straight and level flight? Yeah, we've done straight, uh, sort of uh, effects of controls. Yeah. Uh, straight level flight, uh, climbs, descents, turns, and the last lesson I did was stalling. Um, you have to do a couple of lessons on stalling, so I've done stalling part one. The next one is uh, the interesting title, interestingly titled Stalling Part Two, uh, which is, I think, just stalling in, a, in sort of some different configurations. Yeah, yeah. And then after that, it's uh, you start circuit training. Were you a bit nervous about doing the stalling lessons? Because I remember when I did it, and they went, right, next we're doing stalling. I don't think I then flew for about three weeks because I was scared of doing the stalling lesson. Well, at the end of the previous lesson, I think the instructor was kind of aware of that. So at the end of the previous lesson, he just said, look, I'm going to demonstrate what a stall is. And so we did the stall. And I suppose I think I would have been like yourself, would have been a little bit wary of it if I hadn't known what to expect. But to be honest, a stall in a Cessna 152 was just so benign you think oh right, is that it well make sure you know because you've got any test that's yeah. one thing you, you get tested well many things but that's one thing that is key in your test right okay do you want to know something quite this is how benign the the 152 is yeah. when i did my skills test it, it took me about five attempts to get the thing to even stall <laughs> that's how it, it just does not want to stall so we had to actually like we're practically ripping the yoke off pulling it back to make yeah. it to make it stall so but you still got to learn it so pay attention Talking about pulling the yoke back, I understand you've actually done a takeoff, Carl. Yeah. yeah, I did the takeoff the last time. Actually, the, the guy was going to get me to do the uh, takeoff on the previous lesson, but uh, quite bad crosswinds, so it was quite bumpy, um, so I, I wouldn't want to touch it. But the last one, winds were calm, first takeoff, dead straightforward. Now, if you've done a takeoff, have you actually done a uh, an impact yet? That was what you <laughs> called it last time, an impact. Hopefully, you know that it's now called a landing. I, I know that it's called a landing. Um, <laughs> hopefully, get through the course without too many impacts. <laughs> well, without yeah, what, any impact, one is too many, yeah. to be honest, Carl. Really. Um, the, also, we've got to we've got to go back to our. Um, our question we set you at the end of the last podcast, uh, we did set you a question, which was, what's QFE? Do you know, this time round, what QFE is? Well, I do know QFE, provided I don't get it mixed up. It's a barometric altimeter setting for airfield level. Mm, so therefore, you're saying getting mixed up. What's QNH? Uh, barometric uh, altimeter setting for mean sea, sea level. Look at that. He's oh, done his own work, this boy. Well done. You know what? I'm starting to fill up. It's like, it's like my children are like... <laughs> Oh, he's doing so well. Hang on, guys. Let me just put the books away. <laughs> oh, you, oh, you ruined it now, Carl. Actually, you've got the books. You've got the Trevor Tom books, haven't you? I, oh, no, I haven't. I've got the Jeremy Pratt ones. Oh, the Jeremy Pratt. I was going to say, the Trevor Tom books, they're great, right? But uh, they are going to be teach you too much. Yeah, mm. okay? they're you very in detail. It may be the same with the Pratt books. You can probably tear out pages uh, three, four, five, Hang on eight, a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You might as well tear out chapters three, four, <laughs> yes, five. Is it, oh, the, the Trevor Toms are that in-depth. But no, it's good. that you've got, Have you got all the kit now? Have you got the headset? Have you bought a headset yet? Yeah, i got a, I got a headset. That's uh, when you know you're committed. Yeah, exa- exactly. I, I thought I'd wait until it was about lesson. I got, the first time I used it was the last lesson, so I waited a few before before investing. Our spies tell us as well that you've gone and got a, a, a simulator. 
Yeah, well, I already had one of those from, from ages ago. I've just got the latest version. Just get a little practice in when, uh, you know, can't afford to, uh, the, you know, the time off work. Does it help, do you think? Because I've not used a simulator. Does it actually help? I was kind of thinking it might help with the circuit training, just getting used to the routine and, you know, and, ev- and, and everything. You've got to do the checks and so on. Well, uh, do you know what? It's funny you should say that because that's our, you just mentioned the circuit and you mentioned the checks. Mm-hmm. Our question for you, we're going to leave you with this time round, Pet PPL. Is what's bumfitch? <laughs> no, really, what's bumfitch? Um, I've no idea, guys. I tell you, it's not something you scratch, all right? <laughs> all right, well, we wish you well. All right, thank you. Happy flying. Yeah. And no impacts again, remember. Uh, keep no, it, oh, keep it report, nice and gentle. Report back no impacts for next time. I will just check. You haven't got lost, have you, yet? It's not lost, lost is sorry. it? Uncertain of position. <laughs> Good lad. Thank you, Pet PPO. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, Carl. He is very keen. That is really keen. Six or seven hours in under a month. I haven't done that many in a year. No, that's true. I've seen your logbook. Yeah, it's a bit thin, isn't it, really, to be honest? If anyone would like to donate some no, money no, to my no, flying no, no, appeal, no, 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 go that's, to the Flaps that's, Podcast that's website. Any number of regulations. Is it? All right. Anyway, time for Mason's Minute. Pablo Mason this month is, well, frankly, showing off. It's Mason's Minute. My father died a couple of years ago. No, in fact, gosh, over five years ago now. And he was a man that I loved very much. He never had anything to do with aviation. He was a jobbing builder. And until the day he died, port and starboard were still left and right, and the front and back of an aeroplane was the pointed end and the arse end. Nevertheless, my father took a keen interest in what I did. Now, he lived in Kidderminster, in a place called Offmoor Farm, Uh, A very pleasant dwelling with a couple of nice pubs close by, and his local pub was the Cavalier. And he would go in for his regulation one or two pints at lunchtime and his regulation three or four pints at tea time. And each time he went in, I think a number of the uh, regulars became more and more amused, perhaps bemused, by my father's pride in his son. We were building up to the Gulf War of 1991. The war itself was to set off on the 17th of January 1991 and this was the late summer of 1990. And Dad mentioned during one or two of our telephone calls that he was getting rather frustrated that people simply didn't believe that his son was a squadron leader in the Royal Air Force flying tornadoes and preparing to go to war in the Gulf. Well, he asked me if there was any way that I could help him prove to uh, the folk of Kidderminster that in fact Pablo was uh, pretty much involved and probably going to be well known by the public for a good few years after the conflict had taken place. All I asked him to do was to stand outside his pub at three o'clock on a certain afternoon. It may even have been a Sunday. Oh gosh, apologies to all of the local church services. And because I had been designated as one of the formation leaders for the Gulf, um, I was most interested in trying to practice the tactics that we were likely to need during conflict that we hadn't been able to practice hitherto. In other words, flying fighter-type aeroplanes very fast and very low over built-up areas. Undoubtedly, our targets were going to be in industrial and built-up areas, cities and the likes. Now, in peacetime, we'd never been allowed to overfly these, and it was likely that we would need to develop some techniques as we saw what was happening. That was my excuse anyway. So I telephoned Dad from my base in Germany, 
at around half past one, just as he was going out to the pub, I asked him to tell me precisely what time he had on his wristwatch. And at last, our watches were somewhat synchronised. Gosh, that takes me back. It's something I hadn't done for years. But synchronise your watches. That's what Dad and I did. He still wasn't sure what was going on. He thought that I was going to pitch up at the pub sometime and say hi to the doubters, his friends who shared the bar with him. But he did his bit. He told me later that with about a minute or two to three o'clock, he said, let's go out into the car park because my son's got something to show you. Oh boy, did we show him something. We were high subsonic. Um, I would say probably about 580 knots, which is well over 600 miles an hour, which is a football pitch every few seconds, call it what you will, and no more than 100 feet. And I took four tornadoes in close formation over the top of the Cavalier pub. My father did not buy a single pint of beer for another three months. What's more, when I got back from the Gulf conflict several months later, I was treated to the uh, same privilege. No idea what a pint of beer costs in the Cavalier, but it's delightful and I'm sure still enjoyable today. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. Thank you very much, Pablo Mason. More from him next month. What are you doing? Bear with me. What what are you doing? No, trust me. Hang on a sec. Hello, the Cavalier pub. Good evening. Oh, hello, mate. Uh, Just out of interest, how much is a pint there, please? Pint of what? Pint of Carling. Carling Black Label, extra cold or normal? (laughs) I don't know, extra cold. 2.30. And do you know a bloke called Pablo Mason? Pablo Mason, handlebar moustache, pilot, Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. he he says he doesn't know how much a pint costs in your pub because he drinks for free. Yeah, well, listen, that's what he may say. He does know how much a pint costs. It's just that he refuses to pay. He puts it all on his cab. And if you see him, tell him he owes me £194.60. Right, right, OK. I, I think we better go now. We've got to crack on. Lovely to speak to you, though. Thanks a lot. Well, it's not lovely to speak to you. I want my money. Flaps remorselessly taking the pee-toe. So that's it for another month. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to get in touch, it's mail at flapspodcast.com. You can subscribe at iTunes and you can listen to us at flapspodcast.com. And at that website, you can sign up to our mailing list where we'll tell you all about new editions of Flaps Podcast. And we absolutely promise that we won't sell your details to a Viagra mailing list. Or one of those penis extension sellers. I've never had one of those emails. No? I've never had an email about penis extension. Oh, okay. Anyway, next month... Is there something you want to tell me? Ne- next month... Are you sure you don't want to have a chat? Next month, we check on pet PPL Carl's blast-offs and impacts and Celebrity Pilot returns. And on the 10th anniversary of the Concorde disaster, we'll be talking to two of British Airways' most experienced Concorde flight crew. I wouldn't like to say it was easy to fly. You had to be careful, as most aeroplanes, really. Lovely aeroplane to fly. And more of the wisdom of Pablo Mason. Are you sure you've not had one of those emails? What about the penis extension? No, I've not had one of those emails, no. We're ready for departure. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps.